Do I turn this off? Yes, I'm recording right now. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Real Estate Real Talk. My name is Andrew and I have Jim Archer with me. Jim, say hi to the people. Well, hello people, I'm here with Andy California. He wants to go by Andrew, but he is Andy California to you. Listen, we always get better. We strive to improve. I moved to Texas, I'm happy about it. We're here now, we're moving on. Jim, I wanna talk about real estate. And specifically, I know there's a lot of people interested with this COVID money about investing into real estate. Where did you get started? How do people get started? Talk to us. So I was a junior college, junior college professor and um, I had a great job and it was one of those deals where I could stay there until I was 59 and a half, retire with a great IRA, whatever. It was great and great supportive people. And at the end of the day, I found that it may have been just something that wasn't challenging me in some of the ways I want to be challenged. So I started, I went, started, went to school, getting my real estate license and um, had a couple of partners that jumped in. We were all complete idiots that jumped in and decided we wanted to do real estate investing together. So let's talk about that. I think a lot of people are in that position where they may not have all of the capital up front, but they do have some friends that may want to jump in on something. What are some things people should look out for before we continue on uh, down that path of your first home? Well, I think first of all, if you're, if you're talking about a partnership, you need to really make sure you understand what you're getting yourself and your partners into. And I was fortunate enough to have some guys that were, that were pushing me. I don't know that we were all on the same page necessarily. And so we were gradually moving out of that partnership. But we each put $7,000 up and said, hey, let's go get this with $7,000. So what that $7,000 did is it put $21,000 into a bank account, which at the bank, they gave us a line of credit for $100,000 with that 20 there at the bank. So the idea of getting a line of credit where you're making cash offers on houses is probably one of the most, I don't know, game-changing ideas that somebody can have. The idea that if you could get together with people and had $20,000, you've got $100,000 of cash. You can go around and make deals on houses. And the thing with the consumer, they see $100,000 cash or they put their house up for 70 and you offer them 65 cash, then we're all, you know, we all fall for immediate gratification. So let me get this straight. Just because me and my friends only have $15,000 to put together doesn't mean that's all the money we have to invest. So talk to me about how that works. Am I taking out a $100,000 loan and how do you compound that into another home? Did you have to buy that home outright for a hundred grand and that's how you made it work? Or could you guys have put that 100,000 towards a home that maybe cost 200? That, that's a great way to, that's a great question to ask. Like when you don't have anything, which is where me and my partner started, we didn't have really anything. We again brought our $7,000, but how do you take 7,000 or well, we would say $21,000 and turned into this leverage tool to create more. That was getting a line of credit. We bought our first house, it was $55,000, but the house, if renovated, would be worth $110,000. Oh, so you, if you put in the work, you guys could cover what you owed if you had to get rid of that home. Absolutely. So we found a bank in town that would do something called an ARV loan, which means they would give you an as repaired value appraisal of that home. So they appraised at 110 and gave us 80% of what that home was worth. That covered not only our down payment, we didn't have to put a dime in, but also our renovations. So 
We bought it on a line of credit for 55,000. We refinanced it with an ARV loan. None of it coming for our own pocket. We put that, that 30,000 into the home. So now we've got 80,000 into it, but it's worth 110. Okay. So we just made, right? We just made $30,000 without spending a dime of our own money. That's what I'm trying to wrap my mind around. So that's amazing. So as a pessimist, a Californian, what could have went wrong? Everything did go wrong and, and we still ended up on top. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons for me is to give myself permission to fail and permission to learn. We, we bought that house at 55. We dropped 30 into it. In order to keep it down to 30, we did a lot of the work on our own, which sounded awesome. It sounded like Chip and Joanna. Um, I remember going there and we all took turns with the sledgehammer, knocking out the old kitchen that was in that home. And we would take turns with the sledgehammer and we would talk about the things, our dreams, our goals. So I remember hitting that and, and, and thinking when I hit it with the first sledgehammer, I want to be able to afford buying season tickets to tech, tech games. Because at the time, I graduated with two degrees from tech, but I couldn't afford to buy season tickets to tech games. And I remember taking that sledgehammer and saying, this is my ability to buy season tickets to tech games. And we would take turns with that sledgehammer doing that. Um, problem is, we were going to do all the work on our own. And in order to keep the price down, we had to. It was a massively horrible home. Um, I'll, I'll tell you more about that home in a, in a minute. But we realized very quickly with kids, there's no way we could do all that home that, that work on our own. It was after our other jobs, we were having to go do that. And then on weekends, um, we were having to do that. And we weren't willing to sacrifice our kids' activities. So it just wasn't going to work like we thought on that part. Okay. Now, as somebody who's considered... Uh, jumping into this sort of, uh, I know this was a, was it a flip home for you? That was it, the intent? Okay. No, so all of ours are long-term rentals. Okay, so long-term rentals. And, right. and, that, and that's the game I think, um, I, I guess I would consider diving into, but I am not a very hands, uh, a handsy guy. I, 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 I understand that there's YouTube. I'm glad you're not handsy. I wouldn't be sitting with you if you were handsy. True, true. There are, there are some beverages happening. Um, is this something that you just knew going in, like that's a skill set you had, or is this renovation skill set something you've acquired, or like you just got done telling me, did it force you into finding other alternatives and other people to do the work for you? I can paint and hang pictures. That's my renovation ability. Okay. I have no ability whatsoever, and I had to recognize that and acknowledge that very quickly. So if it had been my only job, I could spend time, learn to do those things, Instead, I had to realize in order to do this well and really make the home worth 110, I need to pay a professional to do those things. And so building a network of people and also buying the house in a way that I could afford to pay a professional to do those things so that it looked like 110,000, not like 65, 75,000. So I, didn't have, I don't have any skills and still don't. And I've acknowledged now that I don't have those skills and I don't do any of the work in my own homes. Do you think now with the way mark, the market is in Lubbock, do you think that the way you approach real estate investing is still a feasible option? I know that prices are really high. I know that, I don't want to age you, but I'm sure back then the dollar was worth a little bit more. Um, I just know, you know from, from even buying a home recently, I know that that home increased its value within a couple months, like up to thirty to $40,000. So what happens if me and my buddies get a $100,000 loan and we go out into the market and the only thing I can find is an $80,000 home, and it needs more than $20,000 worth of work. Now I'm in trouble, right, Jim? 
I think you are in trouble. And that's one thing I would tell people is you, you probably do need a little bit of a cushion that if, if things went, went a slight bit bad, you're not, not putting food on the table for your family. Right. So I've had investors that I've said, hey, this isn't the right timing because you're looking at this as your only source of income. And if it goes bad, it's your only source of income. Your family's not going to eat. So, you know, one thing with me and my partners, we had another source of income. One of the things that people don't realize is what an asset their actual full-time job is. If you've got a full-time job, the bank sees you as someone who can still pay the bills even if the, the, the asset, the new property, doesn't go well. If you quit your job and decide you're going to be a flipper, then now you're a um, self-employed person and they're looking at your tax returns and they're thinking, there's no way I can give this person credit. So your job is one of the greatest weapons you have because now that you put it in front of them and they'll give you that $100,000 line of credit because they know you pay your bills because you have the other job. If I have the other job, it also gives me the ability to hire somebody to do the work. So um, I wouldn't encourage many people unless you've got just an incredible skill set and probably some savings to just jump out right into real estate investing as your only way of providing for your family if if you don't have a job and good credit otherwise. So your dream of being Tim the Toolman was shot. Done. You realized that you needed help. So you talked about building a network of people. How long did it take before this home was a viable money earning asset to you from dropping hammers and saying goals to getting your first rent check? Our first rent check probably took three months of work on that house. And again, I can't do a lot of skilled stuff. So my job was basically demolition. And then there was a, a back house that I spent probably six hours one day. There were about two, two, two inches of dog feces in that house because that's where they kept their dogs. Um, that I, my job was shoveling that, those, that feces out. Um, from some of the demolition of those feces, I still cough. <laughs> and, and you know, I still have probably some long-term issues. So during those issues. three months, are you, are you guys making payments on this home loan? Are you guys splitting the mortgage on this thing? What, what's going on? Interest only on these loans, on that loan. We refinanced it and have interest only. So um, not a bad thing. We're not having to pay hardly anything at all, but we're also not paying down the principal, right? So when the first rent check came in, which was awesome, now we're starting to actually roll. We're paying down the principal and knocking this thing out. Which was our dream. Three guys, one rent check. That sounds like a bad video. You don't want to. You don't want to look at <laughs> online. But um, do not when do you start to really reap the benefits? Because I know that buying these homes that are in this investment price range, things are going to go wrong. These are Absolutely. aged homes. These are You're so. Right. What you really want to do is probably turn around and reinvest in the company air quotes that you're building. But when do you really start to turn any kind of profit, even a negligible one? This is hard for people to hear, but my goal when I'm working with people as an agent is to get them to 10 homes as fast as we possibly can. 10. I know that sounds horrible, but I feel like if I can get you to 10 homes, we're in a place that if you have a vacancy, vacancy is the killer of all of all property investors. Right? Vacancy, you're paying the mortgage on your own, you're paying the insurance on your own, you're paying the taxes on your own, any kind of thing that goes wrong in the home, you're paying, you're paying, you're paying utilities. Vacancy kills that investment. Now, are there vacancy-proof homes? I'm thinking Tech Terrace. I'm thinking 
anywhere near tech, you're gonna have kids coming in. Are there vacancy resistant areas that you try to push investors to, or is it just a complete crapshoot? Absolutely. I had a lady that came in. She came in and she had bought real. She bought an actual investment in Dell Computers right when Dell Computers got started. Made it big, and then all the money she spent was on little homes in Austin, Texas, young close to right? YouTube. Young well, she she was young at the time. Now she's an older lady, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, she bought little homes around UT okay. and made a killing selling those homes one day. But they were all rented all the time to UT students, and the value of those homes shot up. She came to Lubbock, Texas, talked to us and said, this is somewhere I'd put money because you have a college. And her advice was, if you'll stay within a five minute drive of tech, you can't go wrong. And so one of the things I did wrong is I bought homes that were cheap in certain areas um, when I probably could have found one that was five minutes from tech and still cheap, but guaranteed I was gonna have renters. And those renters, those college students' parents signed leases for two years. Because they think their kids are going to be there at least two years. They don't want to come down and go through the hassle of finding a house every summer. So they signed leases for me with me for two years. They're also some of the best runners I've had. They have some little things, nitpicky things they call. And um, you know they can't do some basic things a homeowner can. I don't mind because I don't have a lot of skills. Those are things I, I can sometimes do. Or I have some resources around me. I'll send somebody out to fix those things. But generally, those college students just kind of want to be left alone, do their thing, have fun. When I hear college kids, I flash back to a very smoky period in my time in college. <laughs> oh, no. And I, and I understand that, you know, when you throw small gatherings of like 100, 200 people in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house that I'm renting from Jim Archer, <laughs> oh, things no. can go wrong. What how are college kids as renters? Because I know that there's a positive, right? I mean, I'm assuming you can probably charge college kids a little more because they're paying individually rather than one person fronting a $900 bill. You have three people and you can probably charge them $1,200. Um, that's kind of where mindset, my mindset's at, but I automatically flash to, okay, two years from now, they're graduated. There's holes everywhere. There's a beer 30 packs stapled to my walls what am I going to see when these kids leave? So far, my college students have been my very best renters. And I typically, when they submit applications, so what will happen is we have kind of a season anywhere between April to July when they're really hitting the rentals. And uh, I'll get sometimes five applications first day on one home. I'll go through those applications. I use their social media to weed them out. I go through their Instagram, their Facebook, and I find the one she's going to Bible study She's You're she's not got, looking for Chad for Lambda Kai. No, no? Okay. Not looking for that guy. No, I'm looking for the girl that's typically got a she's an accounting major and her friends are accounting majors, or she's a nursing student, and you know that she's got to study and perform to stay in that program. I'm looking for those students. I'm looking for students who are part of um, Bible studies who I, when I get on their Facebooks or their Instagrams, I'm not offended. I can actually let my kids look at those. Those are the students that I'm, I'm putting in my homes. And I honestly love serving those students. I honestly feel like it's, for me, a chance to provide something safe for them. And also, if they've got a mom or dad in Dallas or Houston, if they needed something, they'd call me. And absolutely, if it weren't um, even just a home need, something I could just help them with, I would, I would do that. Um, so I, I love that part of it. What about the people who are sitting there? I know, I know some of them. Um, they're sitting there thinking to themselves, I have money to invest. 
I have more than a 20% down payment on a home. I am looking to maybe buy a home for my kid that I want to stay, have, they're going to stay in town for college, but I work 40 hours a week and my home time, just like your home time was important to you. It's important to me. I don't want some punk kid calling me at, you know, 2.30 in the morning because the, the, the garbage disposal is not working. I don't have time for that. What about the people who are contemplating using some of these larger companies to run their properties for them? What do you say to that? I use a property manager for half of my homes. I manage the other half. Um, the ones I use property managers for are homes with families. Families, I feel like, are almost always the ones that are calling me more often. They're almost always the ones that are missing rent checks more often. And sadly, they're the ones that are probably gonna require an eviction more often than my college students. I manage all of my college students on my own. And it's because they, they really, they text me, which is very convenient. They don't call and waste an hour of my time. They text me, tell me what the problem is. I put them on a thread with the repair person, let them schedule it. The repair person sends me a bill, it's a done deal. So they're very easy to manage. Families, in my opinion, or at least in my market, are more difficult to manage because they've got they've got all these crazy schedules. Sometimes they can't meet the repair person, or they don't want the repair person there without them. College students are laid back; they care less. I'll put a key box on their door, tell I'll them light a candle so you can't smell the weed. I yeah, got it. I got it. that's right. That's right. Okay, so you recommend people having. You said, like you said, ten homes. Um, I think that's a great goal. I think that um, that's that's a. I mean, talk about almost a folly-proof investment. I think that's awesome. Um, as I think about this, though, I buy a home for a hundred thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars. I put twenty thousand into it. It's livable. I get people in. My mortgage to the bank that I owe them is, let's call it, eight fifty. What are you charging on a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house? You're, you're so much smarter than me. My, my Texas educational system only prepared me for certain things. So I do something called a 1.25 multiplier. So if my whole expense, my mortgage, my taxes, my um, insurance is $1,000 um, or property manager is $1,000, then I've got to make $1,250 on that home to keep that home and make it a viable investment. What are you doing with that 250? Because my brain says, I don't want to replace an air conditioner out of my own pocket. I do not want to come in and put a microwave in that home out of my own pocket. What are you doing with that 250 profit? That 250 is going into an account that I've got under an LLC that's sitting there accumulating for that microwave, take care of that. Sometimes I do have home warranties on my home as well. It just depends on the house and you know, I'll buy a home warranty for 600 bucks and it might cover bigger issues that come up. Um, with that said, that is one of the scarier things of getting an older home is you're often getting into these repairs. So for some investors, some investors, um, they may want to kind of target newer homes, may not be able to get the equity in them right off the bat, uh, may not be able to cash flow them quite as much, but they won't pay um, nearly the amounts on repairs either. Quick fire. If you had a checklist to give to prospective investors, what would be top five, top 10 things you need to have in line, ready to go before you call someone like Jim Archer to get you searching? 
Well, I, I would tell them, I, I do generally sit down and go to coffee with all my investors and we lay out their goals. But I, first of all, your goal, I mean, are you um, wealth management over time or, or wealth building over time um, through equity? And so what I mean by that is maybe you're not putting 20% down, you're putting a small amount down. So the problem with the 20% investor, if they put 20% down, most people don't have the cash to do that very often. They can't get to 10 homes. If you're buying homes with these ARV programs, you can put a small amount down or sometimes, crazy enough, actually get a check at closing. You're not putting any of your own money into it. But if you do that, you're kind of playing a game where your cash flow is going to be really low. I'm fine with that. I'm a self-employed real estate agent, so I don't have a retirement plan. My retirement plan is my, is my rent houses. So I would figure out what your goal is. I have other people that have a little money in the bank and they can put down 20% down payments and that means they can cash flow. They put down 20% down payment, that means if they do pay a little overage in rent, that's all going toward cash flow. So they want to cash flow. I have other people that are just dadgum rich. Those dadgum rich people want to figure out how do I offset my taxes and it's called depreciation. What that means is anything and everything you spend on a rent house and over time, it actually takes away from your tax bill. So maybe they've got a job or an income that pays a lot on one side. They buy rent houses and those rent houses provide depreciation. So know your goal. Once you have your goal, sit down and come up with the weapons you need to get to your goal. So the line of credit, I mean, I think it's a super important thing. That means I need to go to a bank and work with a lender who would give me a line of credit. Second or third lender. I mean, all lenders are not created equal. I work with a couple of lenders that work well with investors. None of the rest work well with investors. And that's horrible to say, but all of my clients want to say, well, my buddy or my banker friend, you know, Cody or whatever is going to help me find all these homes and help me find, finance those. They sure will finance them, but if they're not used to working with investors, they'll do it in a very conventional, traditional way the investors just don't work. They're not flexible enough for investors. So find a lender that works well with investors. Those are the three things I would, I would tell you to start. Narrow down your goals, get your line of credit, find a lender that's going to work well with investors. Well, James, I feel enlightened, mm. I feel empowered. Mm. I almost wish I had a sledgehammer, but um, I wouldn't end well. So I appreciate this conversation and I look forward to our next episode on real estate, real talk, where we'll discuss do's and don'ts for sellers. Thanks, Andy, California. <laughs>